dynamite, I guess is a good expression, to know Jesus Christ, to know who He is, Hallelujah. to know what He means to me personally. And I found out in studying for this more about one Lord than I had probably known in the, all the other 23 years I've been in the Pentecostal church. Having been raised in a church, I knew there was one God, but just it came so even more became more clear to me today. It's so beautiful knowing Jesus Christ. And the more I know about Him, the more beautiful He becomes. Praise God. So with that, let's look at Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter, verse 4. Can someone stand up and quote that for me? Where's my niece? Is Kristen here? She's going to be shy on us. Okay, someone else. Who's, no, Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter, verse 4. I hear it, I hear it. Okay, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. As a Jewish child was raised, as he was brought up in his home, this scripture, this truth, was repeatedly brought to his attention. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And this was drilled into him and drilled into him and drilled into him until there's absolutely no way he could ever forget it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Let's look at Mark, the 12th chapter. Mark, chapter 12. Verse 29. And Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's Jesus Christ speaking. The first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Remember who was speaking. That was Jesus Christ speaking. That makes those words pretty important, don't they? Would Jesus speak a lie? No. So it must be true, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus speaking again. And here he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and he calls that the first commandment. Makes it pretty important. As a matter of fact, it makes it very important. John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and my Father are two. Somebody look it up. Does it say two or one? One. I and my Father are one. That means one. Who said three? I and my Father are one. James chapter 2, verse 19. And this is the one that always... It really gets me, you might say. James, the second chapter, verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Everybody, oh man, we're doing great. Man, I believe in one God, that's fantastic. James just told me I'm doing fantastic. Then he goes on and says, the devils 
believe in one God, I'm doing pretty good. But not much better than the devil. He believes also. And he trembles at the thought of there being one God. When he realizes who his opposition is, he trembles. And some of us can't even believe as much as the devil believes. I believe in one God. And I didn't say that sarcastically or mean it sarcastically, but the devil believes in one God and trembles at the thought of that one God being his opposition. The mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Does that mean we can't understand God? Does that mean we can't understand who he is? Does that mean we can never know him in his fullness, in his entirety? Does that mean he's so confusing and so big and his mystery is so fantastic, we'll never, ever, ever realize who he is? No. The mystery is this, that the Almighty God, who has all power, who is so magnificent, that with just a spoken word, he spoke the worlds into existence, He's so powerful, and yet he loved you and I enough to robe himself in flesh and dwell on this earth and give himself as a sacrifice. And that's the mystery. I can't understand that. That that is just beyond my comprehension. Why God would love me so much to robe himself in human flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great. John 4.24 says... God is a spirit. Everybody say spirit. Spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. Deuteronomy 23.19 says, God is not a man. He's a spirit. Does a spirit have flesh and blood? No. Can you see a spirit? No. Can you feel a spirit? Yeah, I can feel his spirit as he moves upon me. Sometimes I cry, sometimes I laugh, sometimes I run, sometimes I jump, sometimes I sit in awe at his presence. I can feel his spirit. But God is a spirit. Yet, God did robe himself in human flesh. He did come to this earth. He made himself a little lower than the angels. He put on the human flesh that you and I also wear. And in John 1.14 it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word was made flesh. Remember that. Matthew 1.23. Brother Tom, can you find that for me? And read that. Matthew 1.23, as he's looking at that, in Jesus Christ, we find a dual nature in Jesus Christ. He was God, and yet he was man. You can talk about all all of his uh, human attributes. He was hungry, he was tired, he thirsted, he was weary, he died. And we could go on and on and on about his human attributes. And yet on the other side of the coin, you might say, we can go on and on and on and on about all of the attributes of his divinity. He was God. As God, he, though as man he died, as God he brought back to life. 
As man, he walked by the sea, on the seashore. As God, he stepped out and walked on the sea. Right on it. That was his divinity, his humanity. Right there, all in one unit was God and man. Brother Tom, read Matthew 1.23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. <coughs> now that is fantastic to me, to think that God would actually dwell with mankind. That he would come to this earth, the earth that he created, and he would dwell with the man that he created. Now that's fantastic. But see, what is even more fantastic is the promise of Jesus Christ when he told his disciples, I am with you, but I shall be in you. God, even though he was so magnificent, he was omnipotent, yet he became man for my sin, so he could die as my sacrifice. As man, he died. And in John chapter 2, verse 19, we find that Jesus Christ is saying these words, destroys this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. I will raise it up. What was the temple? Was he talking about the temple in Jerusalem, that magnificent structure? No, he was talking about his flesh, his body. Kill this body, and in three days, I will raise it up. Yet in Acts, the second chapter, verse 32, we find that it isn't saying that Jesus raised his body, but God did. Now, I'm confused. And we have a contradiction in the Bible, right? Wrong. Can a dead man bring himself back to life? Well, Jesus said, in three days, I will raise it up. Didn't he? Yeah, sure. That would mean that a dead man would have to bring himself back to life. Right? No. You're getting me more and more confused all the time. How did he do it? It's so simple. Jesus Christ, when he died, was the humanity dying. But when he said, I will raise it up, that was the spirit, the divinity speaking out. I will bring this body back to life. It's no different than Acts 2.32, which says God raised him up. And another scripture says the Holy Spirit raised him up. Now either we have a contradiction in three different places in the Bible, or we have a beautiful truth that all three are one. Yes. Praise God. Hallelujah. In human nature... We have to remember that human nature is governed and regulated by time. And time sometimes gets on my nerves. It really does. Sometimes, yes. There's only 24 hours in the day, and almost all the time you've got 25 hours worth of stuff to do. Right? Almost all the time. So what do you do? You run like crazy all day long. You get home at the end of the day and you go, Bleh. Or else you schedule your time, get everything you can get done, done, and then put it on your schedule for tomorrow. Right? And you come home, relax, and at ease. But humanness, 
Humanity is governed by time. You get up by a clock or by the sun. You go to bed by the clock, hopefully not by the sun. You punch at work, you punch a time clock. And to go home from work, you punch a time clock. When the clock says 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening, you know you're supposed to be in church unless you're out working your Oikos network. So we're just governed by time. Everything that we do is governed by time. But divinity knows no time. He's not governed by our 24-hour period. He is not governed by that small segment of time that we get all uptight about, bent out of shape, and worried about. He's not governed by that. So in humanity, Christ was governed by time. He knew he would have a certain amount of time on this earth. He would have 33 and a half years on this earth to accomplish what he came to accomplish. But as divinity, he knew that what he accomplished in the humanity would last for eternity. So in Jesus Christ, we have human, but we have divine. And the two are beautifully linked together. There's a father-son relationship. Some people are afraid to talk about Jesus Christ being the son. He is a son. He is not God the son, but he is the son. Let's find out. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Now in order to be a son, there has to be a father, right? And in order to be a father, you have to have a son or a daughter. Did Jesus Christ have a father? Luke 1.35 says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Jesus Christ was called a thing. The holy thing that is within you. which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. Now, in order to be the Son of God, there had to be a Father, right? Now, who is the Father? God the Father. But here it says that the Holy Ghost overshadowed her. Now, he's got two fathers. Nope. That's not the way it is, is it? Now some of you are going, where is he going to with this? He's going to have us walking out of here. It's very simple. God is a spirit. He is a holy spirit. God is holy. Therefore, be ye holy even as he is holy. The Holy Spirit is God. Do we have two fathers? We have one father. And his name, we'll find out a little later what his name is. Let's look at another scripture. In Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Now Jesus is his own father. No? No? That flesh, which was born of a virgin, which would be called Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and she bore a child and named him Jesus. Here in Isaiah, his name shall be called Jesus Christ. Though he were flesh, he didn't give birth to himself. That'd be a virtual impossibility. But that Spirit of God gave birth to a human body, became the Father. All fathers have to have a son. All sons have to have a father. That's why Jesus Christ was able to pray to his Father. That's why a voice was heard out of heaven which said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Because as human person, as a person, as a physical body, as flesh and blood, Jesus Christ had to have a body. He, or, yeah, he had to have a body, but he had to have a father. That's what I'm trying to say. He had to have a father. And so that flesh, in talking to the Spirit, was talking to his father. And as the Spirit talked about the Son, Jesus Christ, the human flesh, he talked about his Son. Jesus said in John 17, he was talking about the Father being glorified in the Son. Because the Son came to do the work of the Father. That was to buy total, complete redemption for you and I. Not separate deities, not three persons, not two persons, but one God who manifested himself in three ways. God was manifest in the flesh or revealed in the flesh. Until there was flesh, we didn't know his name. When there was flesh, we found out his name. Now in the Old Testament, he's called Jehovah. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah, and on and on and on. He was called all sorts of things like that. Jehovah. In the New Testament, we find his name being revealed as Jesus, God with us, the Savior of the world. A beautiful linking between Almighty God incorruptible God, immortal God, and corruptible human flesh and immortality right there in Jesus Christ. Deity cannot be born, but humanity can. John chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. We find Jesus talking about his Father. And to help us understand a little better the father-son relationship, in John chapter 14, verses 10 through 11, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words 
that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Jesus Christ here, speaking of his Father, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now we could get confused about that if we tried. Or we could understand that Jesus Christ, the human flesh, the humanity, was giving glory where glory was due, where honor was due. In that it wasn't his human flesh that did the works. It wasn't his human flesh that spoke the words of truth. But it was the spirit that was housed within him, dwelling within him, that spoke the words and did the works. And so that's why he's speaking about glorifying his father. And then sometimes we want the glory for ourselves. Jesus wouldn't even take it. That human flesh wouldn't even take it. He sent it back to his Father, the Spirit, God Almighty. In John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, notice, my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ye shall ask anything in my name, or if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. Jesus is saying, I will do it. Now then, he's just given credit to the Spirit, his Father, for doing the works. Then he turns around and says, if you whatever you ask in my name, I'll turn around and do it. Who's doing the works? God. What is his name? Jesus Christ. Shall we move on? John chapter 10, verse 30. We already looked at this scripture. You can't get much more explicit than this. I and my Father are one. Now, can you misinterpret that? It would be difficult. But I and my Father are one. Simple, straightforward, right to the point. No beating around the bush, just I and my Father are one. Great. John 14, chapter 9 says, Philip has just asked him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will satisfy us. And he says, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Whoever's looked at me has seen the Father. For I and my Father are one. God is a spirit. Can you see a spirit? No. The only way man could ever see God was in the body of Jesus Christ. And now today, he still has a body, and you're it. So today, the only way the church or the world will ever see God is in his body. And that body has how many heads? One head. A three-headed body is commonly called a freak. The church or the body of Christ has one head. All the way through the Bible you will find singularity, stress, oneness, unity, all the way through the Bible. 
And we find it in his body, the church. Let's go on. First John, chapter 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. Uh-oh. Now we are in trouble. I just got done convincing that there was one. And here, John blows it for me. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear record or witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. God manifested or revealed or showed himself in three direct areas. The Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and the Holy Ghost in regeneration. And these three are one. Now then, Paul writes and tells us that we are the temple of God. Right? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And it says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? So, this scripture tells us that we are the temple of who? The Holy Ghost, right? Is that what it says? Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Everybody keeping up? Got fast fingers tonight? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, <coughs> verse 5. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Now, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, we found that our bodies were the temple of the Holy Ghost. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we find that Jesus Christ is in us. Would you believe that Ephesians 4.5 tells us something? Actually, 4.4 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. Paul is a southerner. <laughs> Corinthians 6.19 it says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. In 2 Corinthians 13.5 it tells us that Jesus Christ is in us. And now in Ephesians 4.6 it tells us that God is in us. (laughs) 
Amen. And Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and said, And ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. Right? Now, who is dwelling in us? The scripture says what? Is God in you, the hope of glory? Now, who is dwelling in us? Is Jesus Christ in us? Is the Holy Spirit in us? Or is the Father in us? Yes. Yes. Well, how can that be? That means I'm the possession of three different gods. No. There's one body, one head over that one body, one spirit, one God, so all three of these must be one. God manifesting himself in three separate areas. He didn't think it confusing to tell us that we were going to be filled with the Holy Spirit or to tell us that Jesus Christ was going to dwell in us or to tell us that God was going to dwell in us because they're all one and the same. Simple as that. Let's go on. Now, I, out of the Council of Nicaea in about 325 A.D., there came what was called the Doctrine of Trinitarianism, which stated that there were three separate persons, all co-equal and co-existent and co-eternal. Let's look at John, the 14th chapter, verse 28. John chapter 14, verse 28. Why don't we all read it together? Just so I don't get confused here. Alright? John 14, 28 says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice. Because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. John 8. I'll just let you think on that one for a minute. John chapter 8, verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. In John chapter 14, verse 28, it says, Jesus says that his Father is greater than he is. Right? That means we don't have co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent anymore. Right? And here Jesus says that his Father taught him. If we're co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal, we wouldn't have one teaching the other. 
Now how does Jesus Christ say these things? This makes it sound really like there's at least a dual Godhead. Here the Father is teaching the Son. Now Son, this is the way you do this. That was his human flesh, his humanity, saying the Father is greater than this flesh and blood that you see. He's greater than man. He's greater in his power than any human flesh could ever contain. He's greater in his love. I'm an expression of his love, but he loves you even beyond what I can show you. He's greater. I can't house all of God in this body because God is omnipresent. But all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him in bodily form. All the attributes, all the great characteristics, all the personality of God was wrapped up right in Jesus Christ. He was love. He was compassion. He was empathy. He was all the great things of God. He was anger. Was Jesus ever angry? Two times. Not just once, but two times. That's that's a pretty good track record, isn't it? Boy, if I only got angry twice in my whole life, I'd have really something to boast about. Amen. All right. Now then, there's a scripture found in First Corinthians chapter one, verse three, and it says, "Grace be unto you, comma, and peace, comma, from God our Father, and comma." and from the Lord Jesus Christ, period. That scripture right there, and some other ones, like Romans chapter 1, verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and Ephesians chapter 6, 23, and I'll repeat those. <laughs> says very similar things as this one. That's Romans 1, 7, 2 Corinthians 1, Two, Galatians 1, 3, Ephesians 1, 3, and Ephesians 6, 23, in addition to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. You notice all the 1, the 1, 7, 1, 3, 1, 2, that's because this is the start of all the Pauline epistles, and he starts out very, very similar. Like, grace be unto you, comma, and peace, comma, from God our Father, comma, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that makes it sound like there's one here and one here. And these two are sending us grace and peace. It's interesting when we look at the original manuscripts, which I've never looked at, by the way. But if you go back to the Greek and the Hebrew even in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, but in the Greek here, they don't use any of these things that we call, what do we call them? No. Pronunci uh, punctuation. You can tell how I did in English, can't you? They didn't use any of those critters. I think I'd be better off speaking Greek. They didn't use any punctuation. They just wrote can you imagine getting a letter from Paul 
15 or 16 chapters long without a single punctuation mark? So what they did when they translated in King James time, they helped us out a little bit by putting in punctuation marks. It makes reading a whole lot easier. They put in paragraphs and verses and all that kind of thing, and chapters and punctuation marks. Well, it's really neat, because the people who translated for King James were Trinitarians. So they came in with their punctuation marks here. Have you ever taken one sentence? We used to do this in English class. 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 That's right. Class. We used to take a sentence, and she, the teacher would write it on the board, and then we would have to put the punctuation marks in there. We would have to put them in the way they, we thought they should be, and then about as many different com combinations as we could come up with. For instance, grace, comma, be unto you, comma, and peace from God, comma, our Father. You know, it's just people were putting commas and semicolons all over the place. Well, we won't do that, but I do want to show you how changing a punctuation mark changes the whole scope of the Scripture. Can everybody agree with the com comma right here? Grace be unto you, comma, and peace. Is that a good one? Comma. Okay. Now let's look at this one. The reason the word from is in blue is because it's not found in the Greek. That was added. We can leave it in there, though. From God... Is that a good place for a comma? Should we put one there? Does that do anything? It's incorrect, isn't it? It's grammatically incorrect. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to do something here. I can play with these words all day long. Punctuate that one. Where should we put the punctuation marks? Where? No English teachers here? Where? Put a period at the end of the sentence. Okay. Where else? Everybody's afraid to speak out about a comma. After Father. From God our Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that change the scripture a bit? That makes God our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Guess what word is in the Greek? Not and from. Changes a bit, doesn't it? That's not the only place that you can do that to. You can do it to Matthew 28, 19. 
and you can do it a whole lot of others. A friend of mine by the name of Oliver Blosser, who graduated with his Ph.D. in Hebrew and Greek, can tell you a whole lot about these. And when you place a comma in the wrong place, or in a place that you think is right, or in a place that's influenced by your personal ideas, you change the whole scope of the scripture. And that's how the King James Version was translated. No commas, no punctuation marks. I'll just let you think about that. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And what does that say? What does it say? All right. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Who created it? God did. Right? Everybody agrees with that? Is that correct? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians. Chapter 1. Verses 15 through 17. And this is talking about none other than Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created. But Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now we have a glaring contradiction. Larry, you can't pass up this one. This one says that Jesus Christ created all things. Now, bring a second part of the problem is. Jesus Christ wasn't born. Ready to take over, Brother Ruff? Now, that is a very definite problem, isn't it? That makes it look pretty difficult for someone to create when he's not even created. Let's read the last rest of the scripture. For all things created, notice where they were created, in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Man, oh man. But Jesus Christ wasn't born until, some people say 13 B.C., and some people say 6 B.C., and other people say 8 B.C. How in the world can he ever have created all these things? The visible things. Knock on wood. He created it. How about the invisible things? The air. Have you ever seen air? Los Angeles. <laughs> Try to breathe it, you'll find out it's not air. How about, um, have you ever seen love? Oh, why well, it's got this funny smile. 
No. Have you ever seen love? Have you ever seen the emotion anger? You've seen it displayed. But have you ever just, you know, this is anger. I would like to show you anger tonight. He's a very good friend of yours. <laughs> this is anger. Can we see it? No. Guess who created it? The visible and the invisible. He also created thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. That's why he was able to stand before Pilate and say, you would have no power except it was given you from above. Because in Romans we find also that all power is ordained of God. Now what am I saying? I'm saying that this scripture says Jesus Christ created everything, all things, and was created for him. But Jesus Christ wasn't born until sometime around 6 B.C. Now we have a very definite problem. If Jesus Christ was supposed to have created all this, he had to be there. Right? Doesn't that stand A plan. That plan was to robe himself in human flesh, dwell among men on earth, and give himself as a sacrifice. So it's no problem that in the beginning, the Bible says that Jesus Christ created everything. It's no problem that it says God created everything. It's no problem that it says the Word created everything. Because they're all the same. Jesus Christ, even the beginning, was in the concept of God. That's why in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 15, I believe it is, God gives His first promise of a Redeemer. Because God already had his plan established. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26.
He spoke the word. Now here it says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. Three times. Us, our, and our. And now you've got my back up against the wall and you're saying, now what? Well, there are three schools of thought about that scripture. One is this. God was sitting on his throne talking to his angels. And he said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. That's one school of thought. There's another school of thought that God is using the prerogative of majesty, the plurality of majesty, as in the Hebrew word Elohim, which speaks of all the attributes of God. Even though it's one God, it's speaking of all the attributes of God. And that is the second school of thought. Did you follow that one? Everybody understand that one? Elohim, which is a plural, but it's plural in attributes, not persons. Okay? It's talking about all the various beautiful things of God. And there's a complete study done on that word, Elohim. There's a third school of thought, on this scripture. And it sort of ties in with Genesis, the 11th chapter, verse 7. <coughs> Which says, Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Go to, let us. Plural, right? That's a plural. Some people will say, well, God was talking to his angels there again. That one's tough to stand upon because we can't find that God was talking to his angels. But there's a better explanation. Remember the concept or the plan or the thought of God? In Galatians, pardon me, in Romans 5.14, no, in Romans 4.17, we find that God speaks of things that were not as though they were. Things that were not as though they were. Was Jesus Christ at the creation of the Garden of Eden? I'm talking about the human flesh. Was that physical body 
at the creation? No. We know that. It's impossible. He wasn't born until 6 B.C., thousands of years later. Was Jesus Christ the flesh in the concept of God? Yes. Absolutely. Positively. Without doubt. Romans 5.14 I'm going slow here so you can follow. Romans 5.14 talks about Adam being the figure of him who was to come. For a long time I thought that Jesus Christ was born and created after the pattern of humanity. Not so. Humanity was born and created after the pattern of Jesus Christ. Because before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, the human flesh, was in the logos of God. That's why we know that in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman under the law. We know when Jesus Christ was born. And it wasn't on creation day. Right? Everyone's, everyone knows that. Everyone's got that solidly. If there's one question that someone will ask you when you're explaining the Godhead, it is Genesis 1.26. And if they're a little bit understanding about their Bible, they'll pull out Genesis 11.7 too. And say, I got you on two scriptures. And the Bible says that every word be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So I got you. <laughs> and your knees shake, and your tongue goes dry. Your eyes water, and you're about ready to say, I quit. Don't. Because we know from what we talked about earlier this evening, about there being one God, we know what this scripture is not saying. It's very evident that if you take all the other scriptures about the Godhead and look at them, line them up, place them out on a chart, a graph, whatever you want to put them on, paper, just plain paper, and look at them, it comes out equal to one God. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, positively, without doubt, one God. You can't, you can't say anything else about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You can't say anything else about, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And now I have two scriptures, so I can form a doctrine. And I've got 700 others too. Or whatever. So either there is a glaring, a menacing, angry controversy in the Scripture, or there is a simple truth that's waiting to be revealed. Cheryl? Have you ever talked to yourself? 
Couldn't you get desperate? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Everybody in Ephesians chapter 1? Let's look at verse 9 first. Having known, made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Can you imagine God counseling with you? Well, Suzanne, what should we do today? <laughs> I have a problem. <laughs> now, can you imagine God counseling with you, waking up in the morning, and the first thing you hear is God speaking to you? I haven't got a problem I want to talk to you about. <laughs> no. And in Genesis, or Genesis, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, who worketh things after the counsel of his own will, of his own purpose, of his own plan, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We know that. We know that another scripture tells us that Jesus Christ created all things, and all things were created for Him. Revelations tells us that all things were created for His pleasure, Jesus Christ. So if we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we begin maybe thinking that Jesus Christ is there with God. And God turns to Jesus Christ, and says, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. But that's a real problem because Jesus Christ wasn't there. He couldn't have been in physical form because he wasn't born until 6 B.C. So he couldn't have been there when God said, let us make man in our own image. We know that God counsels with his own will. Right? Ephesians 1.11 Now as stupid as it sounds, as far out, and as crazy as it may seem, can you imagine God talking to himself? 
Well, remember, we know what Genesis 1.26 is not saying. Because if it's saying that there are separate deities up in heaven, the whole Bible is a farce. Because he told Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so all of Judaism is a big bunch of hogwash, and Jesus was a fake. If there's a contradiction in the Bible. Right? If there's a contradiction, we're all going to hell. Now nobody wants to do that, right? I don't want to get on the next plane or train or die and go there. That's a place of eternal torment. That's a place created for Satan and his angels. I don't want to go there. I want to go to heaven and be with God. That's why Jesus Christ came. So I could. So either we have a controversy, we have a contradictory statement in the Word of God, or again, the simple truth is that A, He was speaking to His angels, B, that us, our and our, is a plural form, but speaking of the deity of Christ, the plurality of God, but still one God, all the beautiful attributes, the Elohim of God in the Old Testament, or are we having taking him taking counsel with his own will? Remember Jesus Christ standing before the Jews? Well, let's go back to Moses first. Moses is standing before the burning bush, and I'm about ready to close here. And they're standing before the burning bush. Moses asked, Who do I say sent me? Give me a name. The Egyptians have names for every one of their gods. Now give me a name. God speaks out of the burning bush and says, I am that I am. Have something. Now it would be pretty tough for me to walk into Pharaoh and him ask me, who sent you? I am that I am. <laughs> who? Jesus Christ is. That is a human being like you and I, 
He suffered torment. He su suffered tor temptation, torture. He suffered pain. He suffered temptation so that he could understand what you, you and I go through every day. But as God, he gives us the strength to go through it and to overcome it. And going back to Genesis 1.26, it's not talking about two or three or four. I heard one person say there's four gods because Lazarus came forth. Now, fortunately they were jesting. They really weren't speaking that as a doctrine. What do we have? Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ speaking, I am with you, but I shall be in you. And on and on and on the scripture goes. And on and on. Remember, in order to be on the safe side, you take all the scriptures you can about a given subject. And once you've got all the scriptures, you form your doctrine. Is that correct? Is that the best way to do it? Is that the safe way to do it? As you look through the Bible, you can only reach one conclusion if you have half an ounce of intelligence. That there's one God. If you can read and understand what's written in the pages of His Word, it all spells one God. There's no controversy. There's no contradiction. God, about ready to create mankind, thinks of His concept, of His plan, begins to consider it, and says, in my plan, in my concept, I have my son, the firstborn. The firstborn. Have you ever thought of that? The firstborn. And he was born a whole lot of people. And a whole lot of people were born before Jesus Christ was. But the firstborn. So in the concept of God, he sees himself robed in what we know as human flesh. He thinks, that's my image. That's the logos made evident. That's my concept that people can't see. They won't be able to see it until I make it evident for them. <coughs> I'll make man in that image. My concept, my plan, that's how I'll make man. That's how I'll shape Tom Morey, Kathy Weber, Carla Bauer. That's how I'll do it. In the image of Jesus Christ. So it all comes up after everything's tossed and tumbled and everybody's saying what they believe. It comes up one. Understand? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
The Old Testament is continually a type and a foreshadowing of the New. We see that in the tabernacle plan, right? Do you realize in creation we have a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ being human nature and divine nature. Deity and humanity. That's what Jesus Christ was, right? In creation, we see the same thing. The deity having the concept of humanity and creating Adam in the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful to know who Jesus Christ yeah, is? Yeah, that's right. That I don't have to worry about trying to get Jesus Christ in bodily form sitting up there in heaven when God created the world. I've all of a sudden realized something, that when I speak the name Jesus Christ, often, and I know a lot of people do this, Pentecostals, we say Jesus Christ, what do we think of? We think of that man hung on Calvary. But Jesus Christ is more than just a man hung on Calvary. That Jesus, that name there, is a name for God. In the beginning, in the end, and in between. It's the same name. It's the same beautiful name. Do we have an organist? There's a song that says, it's all in Him, it's all in Him. The fullness of the Godhead, it's all in Him. Who is it in? Jesus. Who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Do you think you understand? Or maybe did I confuse you? I hope not. about who Jesus Christ is? Do you know who He is? Do you understand His dual nature? I know some of you, this is, you've been taught this before. But it's so beautiful to again and again and again realize that Jesus is God. I am in my Father and the Father in me. It's all in Him.